Well, tonight we're going to examine together 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 41 through 46, which again is uh, different than what is in the bulletin, and that is my fault. Uh, I skipped ahead a little bit. Looking forward to that uh, passage next week. But uh, maybe we cover chapter 18, 41 to 46. If we did, I forgot, and I want to look at it uh, anyhow. It'll be very helpful Uh, This passage, as God would have it, uh, as a precursor for you who are here tonight to our Lord's teaching on prayer next Sunday morning in Matthew chapter 21. There Jesus makes some very strong claims about prayer to his apostles, and we're left maybe scratching our heads a little bit. Jesus talks about throwing a mountain in the sea and And uh, our initial tendency is to read that and think, well, boy, my prayer life really stinks. Um, But remember that no apostle actually ever prayed for a mountain to be cast into the sea. So we'll look at what our Lord is talking about uh, next Sunday morning, Lord willing. But tonight we have, honestly, really key Old Testament background for what our Lord is talking about as we look at Elijah and his prayer for rain. I'm going to read God's word tonight, beginning in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 41. And I, only, I just remind you one more word of introduction. I remind you that this follows and really is part of the whole scene on Mount Carmel of the prophets of Baal and uh, gashing themselves, praying for Baal to cause fire to fall and Elijah has prayed and even though they've soaked the altar with water fire has fallen from heaven and they have slaughtered the prophets of Baal according to the law of God as to what is to be done to a false prophet and now we come to the scene of what happens next chapter 18 verse 41 now Elijah said to Ahab go up eat and drink For there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up to the top of Carmel. And he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go back seven times. It came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, so that the heavy shower does not stop you. In a little while, while the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Then the hand of the Lord was on Elijah And he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we are captivated by this man, your servant Elijah, and especially by your displays of power at this point in Israel's history. We love these stories because they are true and they reveal something of your power. But we know that they're recorded not only for our curiosity, but for our instruction. And so we ask tonight that your Holy Spirit, again, would teach us what you have for us and 
that we would be men and women of prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is dry in Israel. This is the northern part, remember, of Israel. At this point, Israel and Judah are divided, and it is very, very dry. And it's dry because back in chapter 17, verse 1, I invite you to turn there with me, we were introduced to Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the settlers of Gilead, and he said to Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, with Jezebel as his wife, he said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word, neither dew nor rain. Now it is generally already there, a hot climate. It is uh, a part, I mean, the terrain is varied throughout Israel. Um, You can go from Jericho, which is like uh, it's almost like a tropical climate because it's, it's uh, elevation to Jerusalem where it actually can snow in the wintertime. But by and large, the climate there, I understand, is generally dry and hot, even though it can be varied, uh, much drier than where we live here in New Hampshire. And large parts of the territory are dependent on dew. Now, we understand this. Um, Right now, my lawn out front is absolutely getting toasted. I, I kept it watered uh, before the wedding because I wanted it to look good. I, I was babying it and going out and watering it, and I kind of enjoy that kind of thing. You know those, those guys you see out there watering their lawn? You think, what a, what a fool. <laughs> That's me. And it's kind of enjoyable out there to water the lawn, and, and uh, I do enjoy taking care of the lawn, but it is frying it is toasting because of the sun now and I'm, I'm not putting any more water on it because I don't want our well to go dry anybody else concerned about that these days and so uh, the days of watering the lawn right now are over kaput and so uh, but initially last week it was still looking uh, pretty good because we had we'd had a couple rainstorms uh, thunder showers that came through didn't steady for a long time wasn't as much as I hoped and wanted but at least a little rain, and then the humidity, this is key, the humidity meant that in the morning there was a pretty good heavy dew, and somehow that water worked down into the sod, and the grass was looking okay for a little while. I say all that to illustrate how important rain and even dew can be to crops, and we're not talking here about lawns in Israel, we're talking about crops, and we're not talking about a few months of dry weather. We're not talking about a season. I'm talking about a year. We're talking about three years and six months. That's according to James chapter 5. Turn there with me for a moment as that's a key New Testament passage commenting on 1 Kings chapter 18, our passage tonight. There, the apostle James, in James chapter 5, verse 16 teaching on prayer, references this very episode with Elijah. And he says in chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another, pray for one another, so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. 
Elijah was a man with such a nature as ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Three and a half years, we learned from James, that it did not not rain, there was no thunderstorm, there was no passing shower, there was no dew. Have you ever been in a very hot, very dry uh, area? When you walk on the ground, um, your feet are covered with dust because every footstep just causes the ground underneath you to just kind of go poof. Everything is like dust. Uh, Everything is dead. There is nothing green. There's not much... um, Singing of birds, even birds need water. There's not much buzzing of bees because the flowers are not even blooming. The creatures, you see carcasses undoubtedly around the landscape because they have not had any water. And we learned how desperate it was at the beginning of chapter 18 when King Ahab said to his servant Obadiah, uh, let's basically, let's go look for water, verse Five, let's go through all the land to springs of water into all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and not have to kill some of the cattle. Things are so bad that they're beginning to have to kill animals, not for meat, but because they have no water for the animals to drink. So it is a desperate situation. It is a difficult situation. Not only are there cattle who are dying because of thirst, but undoubtedly there are citizens in Israel who are dying because of thirst. Their local well has gone dry. There is no water with which to cook. There is no water to drink. Its conditions are not just thirsty like on a hot day. Boy, I wish I could have a drink. They are desperate to the point of starvation because it's affecting crops. There is no crop likely in this second and third year. There is no food that's stored up. And so starvation and famine are ensuing. And so it's a drastic situation. For three and a half years, there has been no rain. And that is not accidental. Obviously, it's at the word of the Lord. When Elijah says, he refers to himself in chapter 18, verse 1, as standing before the Lord. He stands before the Lord as a servant to do his will. Elijah's not coming up with this. All he is is the messenger. And God had told Israel long before, turn with me if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 28, that this is exactly what would happen to the people and to the land if they forsook him, if they turned from him. There in Deuteronomy chapter 28, in verse 23, as part of the cursing that God would invoke upon the nation if they did not obey the Lord and sought other gods, like Israel was with all the Baals, then verse 23 of chapter 28, the Lord, the heaven which is over your head shall be bronze. And the earth which is under you, iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder and dust 
from heaven it shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Some of you have seen uh, pictures or footage of the Dust Bowl that um, happened in the earlier part of last century. Uh, the, the drought in the Midwestern part of the United States and because of the farming practices and the lack of rain for numerous years, there were dust clouds that would reach up into the heavens, literally. And it would be so dark that when they would come in on a town that you couldn't even see the sun. And cattle would literally suffocate because of the dust. And whole houses would be filled with the dust and the dirt because of the drought. And God said if effectively that that is what would happen to Israel as one of the judgments, the curses that would come upon them if they ever were to forsake him and to go after other gods. And so this scene, this drought is not accidental. It is a fulfillment of the word of the Lord. And I want to remind you that as we learn of this, as we follow the story of Elijah the Tishbite, he's, he's one of our favorite characters. Uh, um, Ed uh, Jaworski was here several weeks ago. We, we looked at the scene on Mount Carmel, and he said that this passage is his favorite in all of the Bible. And I understand why. It's, it's an incredible scene. And Elijah is quite a character. But what we're learning of in these verses and in these chapters is about God and the the certainty and power of his word, that what he says he does, and he's able to accomplish unlike any other God, for there is no other God. And so this great showdown has happened at Mount Carmel for generations now under the leadership of wicked years now under the leadership of King Ahab and Jezebel, his godless Baal-worshipping wife, Uh, Israel has been led into idolatry and you remember the scene where on the mountaintop right there it's on the uh, just on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and Mount Carmel is lifted up and so from this elevation you're actually you're looking out over the sea you can actually see right out into the Mediterranean it's quite a place and on this prominent location there's a showdown, and it's revealed that Yahweh is the true God. The people, once they see the fire fall from heaven upon the soaking rocks and soaking wood and soaking um, ox, the meat, and devours not only the ox, the meat, not only the wood, the stones, and licks up the dust, they fall on their faces and they cry out, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. Chapter 18. Verse 39, they get it. Uh, there's clarity. <laughs> there's no, uh, no more hesitating uh, between two opinions. Uh, there's, there's clarity in the form of a fireball coming from heaven right before their eyes. They seize, verse 40, the prophets of Baal. And again, to our modern eyes and ears, this sounds a bit drastic. But we're reminded here how much God hates idolatry. And that he is a jealous God. He's jealous for the truth. That he is God and there is no other. And we're also reminded of how evil and wicked false prophecy is. Leading people astray into falsehood. And God had commanded 
that false prophets in Israel would be executed. And it must have taken some time to execute 500 plus prophets. And they takes them down to the brook Kishon, verse 40, which is dry. Think about it. There's, there's actually no water flowing, likely, down the river Kishon into the Mediterranean Sea. And so all that fills there is the blood of the prophets. That's all that's in the river Kishon, the false prophets. But after that, verse 41, and this really continues the scene. This is, this, is, this is the moment that Elijah has been praying for. For three plus years, he's been praying that God would change the heart of the king, that God would end the drought. Elijah is a prophet. He is the messenger. But don't you think that his heart is burdened for the people? We, we know in his interaction with the widow, uh, the woman who, and her son who who were starving and about to die, we know that Elijah has seen the starvation of the people. His heart is burdened for the people of Israel. He's not enjoying this. Oh yeah, Ahab, Jezebel, they're getting it. No, his heart is broken for the people of Israel. And so God here has moved in a powerful way and Ahab, or rather Elijah, is, is overjoyed And he says to Ahab, he's still acting as the servant of the Lord, as a prophet, go up, eat and drink, for there's the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Now this eating and drinking, verse 41, he's telling Ahab, hey, go start celebrating. Go have a feast. Now, it's interesting, Ahab is still Ahab. We still don't like him. I don't like him. But think about it. Elijah, as wicked as Ahab is, Elijah is encouraged for it's under Ahab's watchful eye that the false prophets have been executed. So Elijah has reason to be encouraged. Ahab is the king of Israel according to God's plan. Ahab, rather Elijah, is the servant of the Lord. And insofar as Ahab is getting in line with God's plan, Elijah is the king's servant. And so Elijah says to Ahab, go up and get ready to have a party. Get ready to have a feast. Eat and drink. This isn't bad. This isn't, we sometimes think eating and drinking, oh, that's bad. No, this is good. This is good. I've been eating uh, a lot lately, uh, the last few months or so with the wedding. I've enjoyed it, but that's got to stop. But uh, Ahab, this is, this is a time of joy. And this is, this is, Elijah's thinking this is, this is a moment of repentance. All these people in Israel have witnessed God consume this altar and this sacrifice with fire. They have confessed the truth that Yahweh is God. They are so convinced that they have participated in rounding up at least 500, 500 false prophets and going through the time of seeing them slaughtered. This is not a passing whim. The people are determined at this point. And Ahab apparently is, is going along. He's, he's in agreement. I mean, he saw the fire fall too. And so Elijah's thinking, the king is changing. God's changing the king's heart. God's changing the people's heart. And so this is a time of rejoicing. Because God had, yes, said that he would curse the people with drought if they turned from him. But God had also promised that he would bless them if they would turn to him, if they would repent. And if they are repenting as they are here, turning to the Lord, then it was time for rain to fall.
It was time for the curse to end and for the blessing to come. And Elijah says, for there is the sound of the roar of a shower. Now, we know at this point there's actually no shower. But Elijah is a prophet and he can hear it. It's as good as, it's as good as here. Um, Again, uh, last I referenced that storm. I think it's the same storm, Tom, that blew over the arbor in the back field there last Tuesday. It was this, it was this, we've had this series of thunderstorms coming through, right? Um, and, you know, we watch as they come from across New York, Vermont, western Massachusetts, and we watch them as they come in. Is it going to go north of Concord, south of Concord, north of Pittsfield, south? I mean, we watch, you know, which one of us is going to get hit. And uh, we happened to be right in the line of this one that came through, and it really was, uh, it was lively. We had uh, lightning all around us, and, um, but accompanying the lightning was, was, was rain. And uh, I have this uh, feed trough uh, that, I, that I bought at a local uh, Agway store once upon a time. And I have it uh, placed uh, in the front of the house. I don't have gutters there. And uh, I wanted to collect some of this water uh, for watering, but also so it doesn't all go down into the basement. And so it's there. And this location where the roof and the porch comes together, when it rains, it comes down pretty good there. Well, we took some video of when that storm came through. And it was pouring up that this 50 or 100-gallon uh, feed trough, I don't know how, how much water, how many gallons, Tom would know. But it filled up within maybe two minutes. I mean, just pouring over an absolute deluge of water coming down. And that's what Elijah says is coming after years, years of drought. He says, Ahab, it's time to rejoice. It's time to celebrate for the true God is here. And he caused fire to come down upon the sacrifice. But now he's going to hear your prayers and our prayers and rain. He's going to send not fire. He's going to send rain, a heavy shower. And wonder of wonders, verse 42, Ahab obeys that, that ought to stand out. I mean, he doesn't usually do this. Uh, he doesn't really like Elijah, and Elijah doesn't tend to like him. But they've both been in the presence of the mighty God. And there's no arguing, there's no hesitating. Ahab has seen God act at Elijah's prayer and at Elijah's word. And so in light of the recent evidence, Ahab believes him. If fire came down from heaven, then surely rain can come too. And so Ahab obeys. He believes the word of Elijah. It's, it's remarkable. And no wonder Elijah is encouraged. Ahab doesn't say, well, we'll see. I'm not so sure about that. He's a convinced man at this point. And he goes up to eat and drink. He begins preparations for a feast. But wow, now this is, this is kind of put Elijah in a pickle. I mean, it hasn't rained for three and a half years. He's just told the king to go start, start the barbecue, start the picnic, start the party, because there's rain coming. And not just a, not just a little passing rain, not a dew. It's going to be a, a downpour. So what's Elijah going to do? Is he going to stand on Mount Carmel and declare rain? No. Is he going to um, 
somehow wave his hand or a stick. No. He's going to crouch down, verse 42, on the earth and put his face between his knees. He's going to pray. And he's going to pray in a posture, and that's not indifferent. This this servant of the Lord, this prophet who has just been lead worshiper in a scene where fire has come down from heaven and is pretty high right now in the esteem of the people. I mean, uh, he wasn't too popular, but now everybody wants to get his signature. This prophet who's been used of God in this amazing way is on his knees with his head on the ground appealing to God. He's praying. Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary again was so helpful. And I I read from it almost every time because it is so helpful. I'm also gently always trying to encourage you to pick up your copy in your house somewhere in a box, cardboard, on a bookshelf somewhere and dust it off and and look at it. I see one. There's some here tonight. That's good. But he points out, he says, Elijah is repeatedly reduced to the helplessness of prayer, though readers may fail to observe it. Elijah prays for life in chapter 17, verse 20, for fire in chapter 18, verse 36, and for rain here in chapter 18, verse 42. Elijah has no power, says Davis, to produce any of these changes. We might think he is a super prophet, but only if we ignore the whole testimony of the text. Elijah is always confessing his inability because he resorts to begging Yahweh for what he can in no way bring about. We must hold to the biblical picture. For all his seeming dynamism and charisma, his assertiveness and control, his gumption and boldness, Elijah has no magic, no ace up his sleeve to play in a pinch. He can call upon no sleight of hand by which he slithers slithers out of the tight spots and dead-end dilemmas. Elijah can only confess his helplessness. That is, he can only pray. Prayer is most humiliating work. Very helpful. Elijah is a righteous man. He stands before the Lord as a servant. He is in scripture held out to be one of the greatest prophets. He's held up before us in the New Testament as a model of a righteous man. But his influence was not in his personality, not in his leadership finesse. It was in his prayer. He was a humble man. And when he gets on his knees and puts his face in the dirt, and there's got to be times we do that. I'm not going to tell you when, but, and I understand that for some of us physically, we may not be able to do that, but there should be times, brothers and sisters, when we're not only just sitting on the couch, but when we get on our knees, when we take the body that God has given us and we put it 
in a place of position, a humility before God. And this is where he's at. He's crouching down on the earth and his face is between his knees. And what's he asking for? Apparently, we're not told, but he's asking for rain. James, back to James chapter 5, helps us out when he tells us expressly that when he's on his knees, crouching with his face in the dirt, that there Elijah, verse 18 of James chapter 5, that he prayed again and the sky poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. It's in verse 17, James tells us, and we're not told actually in First Kings, but James tells us under the tutelage of the Holy Spirit that the drought came by Elijah's prayer and the end to the drought came by Elijah's prayer. It's both came by prayer. And James is underscoring the power of prayer. But what Elijah is praying for is not something that he is came up with on, on his wish list. He, he doesn't have a list on his phone or on a little piece of paper that he carries around with him. Things I would like God to do. I'm sure he has a wish list, but this is this here, he is praying for what has already been revealed by God. He had been told by God that he was to be a prophet, apparently, and that he was to be used of the Lord to pray for the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 28, the earth, the heavens being like bronze and the earth like iron. And so what Elijah was praying for when he prayed for the drought to come was praying what had already been revealed in the will of God. Likewise, God had revealed in the blessings in Deuteronomy and elsewhere that his heart was merciful and compassionate, the heart of God, and they desired to bless his people. And so when Elijah gets on his knees, it is in faith in what has already been revealed but yet he does not presume that, oh, well, God said it's going to happen, so it happened. He understands that God is glorified and God has ordained such that it is through prayer that the revealed will and desire of God comes to pass. It's so important for us to understand. And it's going to be helpful for us as we come to Jesus' teaching. It's in response to what the revealed will of God that we pray, and we pray in faith. He prays in faith because he knows it is God's will. He's not wondering. He's not praying, if it be your will, Lord. He is praying upon the, upon the revealed will of God, and he knows that God's desire is to bless his people and to reveal his great power, and so he prays. He has a servant with him, verse 43 of chapter 18, 1 Kings. And he says to the servant, go up, look to the sea. So he's praying and he's expecting that it's coming. He went up and looked and said, there's nothing. And Elijah says, go back seven times. Does this remind you of Jericho and marching around? What, what, what's going on there? What gives? Why not the first time? Well, I don't know. Um, but isn't it honoring to God? Isn't it honoring to God that Elijah, because he knows it is the will of God, 
in his prayer is expecting. And so it's just a matter of waiting. And it's an expression of childlike faith that he sends his servant to go and to look. And his servant goes and looks. Nope, no rain yet. Okay, pray, pray. Okay, go look again. Pray, pray. Seven times. And it reveals, at the very least, that the rain comes not at the behest of this powerful prophet, but by order from the throne of heaven. All Elijah has done is humble himself in supplication. Well, this seventh time, a cloud as small as a hand's man, the servant says, is coming up from the sea. He looks over the Mediterranean and sees just this tiny wisp of a cloud. And it's coming. That's enough for Elijah. His prayer has been answered and he knows what's coming. And in faith, he's, he's able to say to the servant, go and say to Ahab, Get, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you. Wow. And in a little while, the sky grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. Jezreel um, is about 15, 20 miles southeast. Uh, from, you're looking southeast. Um, Carmel is right there on the Mediterranean, and inland about 15 to 20 miles is Jezreel, which was apparently one of the palaces of Ahab and Jezebel. Amazing. And not only does he then send, tell Ahab to ride, and Ahab rides, but then, verse 46, Elijah runs in front of Ahab. Now, this is strange to us. Um, What? Uh, We're picturing kind of this old guy. Um, Well, actually, we don't know he's old. We don't know how old he is, I don't think, unless I missed that detail. Um, we often kind of read things into the text. We don't know how old he is, so apparently he's able to, to move rather quickly. A chariot is probably not going all that fast. The, the terrain's uh, probably not like driving on 93. It's probably a little rough. And so the chariot is probably going at a good pace, but God gives to Elijah the strength to run ahead. And this was common practice in ancient times for a runner to go before the king and to let people in front know that he was coming and to get the road ready, to, to get things ready for the king is coming. It's, a, it's an honor to the king and it's an honor for the servant. And Elijah here is, is expressing his loyalty to Ahab. As God's king over Israel, as wretched as he's been, Ahab apparently at this point is a repentant man. He's turning to Yahweh and Elijah is thrilled and he's thinking this is the beginning of the revival that I've been longing for. And so he takes upon himself and serves Ahab by serving as his runner, his herald going on before him. And he outruns Ahab the whole way, 15, 20 miles to Jezreel. It's amazing. It's not unthinkable, but it is amazing that he does this. After this exhausting episode on Mount Carmel, after exhausting himself in prayer, he runs what essentially is a marathon 
on bare feet or sandals, I don't know. And he doesn't exactly have uh, nice Nike or Adidas running clothes. Um, he has to kind of wrap things up and, and run that way in the rain, soaking, pouring rain. It's a moving scene. The whole scene from Mount Carmel and the prayer and the rain and outrunning Ahab. And we'll look next Sunday evening at what follows. But tonight, as we come to a close, what would God have for us as we reflect on this passage? First of all, we want to fix in our hearts that he is a great God, that he is able to do whatever he has declared he would do. We together examined for years God's promise in Philippians that he will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And it was on the basis of that revealed scripture, that revealed will of God, that we prayed for a building. We really did need a building. We're, we're not, you know, sometimes we, we, we chasten ourselves, well, we're just spoiled um, Westerners, you know. If, if we were really hardcore, we'd meet out in February and tend to below zero, and those people really love Jesus. <laughs> oh, okay, um, uh, I, I think Jesus would like a building too. Uh, I don't think he would particularly like 10 below degree weather. Um, we actually did need a building. And I use the word need, need, need. We ha- need a building. We could meet outside in the summertime somewhat. We, we experience that. But we cannot regularly meet outside effectively and what's going on tonight take place. And we didn't know how, and we didn't have the means. And look where we are tonight. Two months ago, maybe, leadership, we looked at each other, maybe a little bit more, and as we, the, the quotes came in for HVAC, and we basically had maybe $50,000 that we thought we could contribute, maybe a little more, needing to come up with $100,000 or more. And as of tonight, I don't know if we've even shared this with you, but we're able to say to you that all of the money that we've needed, and as far as we know more, God has supplied. How did he do that? I don't know. Through the hearts and generosity of his people, providing in ways we could not have foreseen, moving in hearts and the resources that folks had. God is able to do what he says he will do. There's no question. And this text definitely impresses that upon us, that whatever is in front of us, whatever he has revealed as his will, whatever he calls us to as a matter of obedience, and whenever we have a true need, he is able to supply and to bring that about. It also teaches, of course, about the importance of prayer. And I think we all can grow in prayer, don't you? I think we can grow in prayer individually. I think we can grow in prayer together. Why is prayer so hard? Lots of reasons, maybe. Maybe on a Sunday night when you're at church, 
you're tired. Maybe you think you're too sinful or unworthy or whatever the case may be. But the real reason prayer is hard is because it's humiliating. There's nothing, in a sense, that lowers us as much as prayer because we must acknowledge, I can't do this. I don't have this. I have no power to bring this about. And that is absolutely counter to the culture that we live in. It's absolutely counter to our own hearts. That's why I I confess this to my shame. If I have a day off, I have in my mind a list of all kinds of things that I want to do. And there are things mostly that I can do. At least when I start out the day, I think I can do. And then about halfway through, um, as the futility of life meets me and things break. But too often, a time of prayer is not in the forefront of the list. Or maybe a short prayer to God every day. But why is it that it's so difficult for us to bring ourselves to spend some time in prayer? And I'm not talking about hours. I'm not even talking maybe 30 minutes. But even five, ten minutes alone with the Lord. Thanking him. Praising him. Pouring out our heart to him. Asking him to protect us. Asking him to help us. Asking him to bless those we love. Asking him to save those that we know don't know the Lord. Why is it so hard? Because basically it's an extended time of humbling ourselves. It's counter to our sinful nature. But God is calling us to prayer nonetheless. And I want to end tonight again by turning to James chapter 5. Because it's always best when Scripture, New Testament, gives you spiritual application from an Old Testament text, you better go with that. And James, the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, is adamant that we are to pray. In the situation here, apparently there was some sin in the church, and because of sin, some people were sick. God do that type of thing? Sure. Does that mean every time you're sick, you're sinning? No. But there's times when we know we're wandering from the Lord or disobeying him and we're hitting our head against the wall or things are happening. and God is opposed to us because we're proud. But apparently this person or persons who was sick humbled themselves and called upon the Lord and called the elders of the church to pray And this person is quite ill. But God is able to heal and to forgive sins. And so we are to, verse 16, confess your sins to one another. This doesn't mean that we tell everyone every sin of our heart. We're to bring that to the Lord. But that we maintain in our church the reality that all of us are sinners. 
that we are sinful people, that we are struggling, we are limping along. We live like that, and we pray for one another. We don't assume, oh, she's got that, he's got that. You know, that's those, they've got it. No, we pray for one another. None of us has got it. We pray for one another that God would help us and that we may be healed. 4 verse 16, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. If Elijah hadn't prayed, would rain have come? Maybe, but Elijah would have been disobedient. God would not have been honored. In the mystery of God's providence, prayer is the means that God has appointed to accomplish his will. I'm going to close by reading just a few lines from Dale Ralph Davis's commentary, reflecting on James and 1 Kings 18. He says, God's will is certain, but he delights to do his will in answer to the prayers of his people. The prayers of the saints constitute the appointed channel by which God works his will. He's not limited to prayer, but we might say he highly prefers it. God wants to accomplish his will through prayer. It's his choice that he would be honored, that we might remember that we are needy. And so let us pray not just in closing of the sermon, but let us this summer renew our heart for prayer. May God make it so. Father, we do pray that you would put within us a new spirit of prayer and supplication. We recognize that's what we need more than anything else that we tend to think that we've needed. For those who maybe our prayers are very seldom, maybe we haven't talked to you in a while, Maybe it feels like such a burden or such an interruption. And our conscience, informed by your word and your spirit, tells us that is not right. Or maybe our prayers have been listless and cold, mere routine, a matter of formality, a a check in the boxes of the day to do. And there's been little time or heart to sincerely adore you and to worship you to earnestly take on our hearts the concerns and needs of others. And so we prayed, forgive us for our prayerlessness or our praying that is proud, is an offense to you. And we pray that in place of prayerlessness or prayers that do not please you, that you would, by your mighty spirit, and we know this is your will, what we're asking, that you would move in our hearts, and that you would stir us up to pray, and take away from us the fear of failure, take away from us false expectations and about how we should pray, and just give to us, we pray, O oh God, a spirit of earnestness thankfulness and faith 
like your servant Elijah, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.